Welcome back, everyone. This is episode number 24 of the Rest and Reza podcast. And today I've got my first ever international guest on the show, who also happens to be my uncle, actually. Um, his name is Talib Danji. He is a CPA by profession, um, has a bunch of experience on the entrepreneurship side. Um, so we'll talk about the economy. We'll talk about inflation. Today's topic is going to be very broad, real estate economy, maybe even touch on AI a little bit, if you have any thoughts on that. Sure. But uh, without further ado, I'll give the floor to Talib. If you can introduce to our audience who you are and uh, your background and what you're up to these days. Thank you. Uh, Essen, thank you so much. My pleasure. And uh, good morning. I think it's still morning yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I'm still in Houston time. Yeah. So uh, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, great to be here in Toronto, uh, one of my favorite cities. Uh, so just a quick background. Uh, I'm uh, based out of Houston. Uh, uh, emigrated to the United States uh, in 1990, got my accounting degree, and then joined a big four, and pretty much spent most of my career at uh, at Ernst and Young, you know, uh, where I had the opportunity to serve some of EY's largest clients in both the audit and advisory space. My specialty in that area was energy trading. Um, that opportunity gave me a chance to travel the world, gain a lot of experiences about how big companies operate. Uh, while being in, while based in Houston, I also uh, started to invest in the real estate markets in Houston. In addition, I also invested in some services businesses, for example, some car washes. Yes. Uh, you know, I recently launched, launched a couple of years ago, uh, a business called Tax Cutter, where it's a digital service, it's a startup, and we help our, our customers, our residential customers, challenge their property taxes. In the United States, you can challenge property taxes. Yeah and uh, you can get them reduced, so I launched a business. So uh, to say that I'm keenly interested in small businesses, nice. it, it's very clear from our activities. Uh, the areas that I really focus on is where commercial value is. Um, I'm also a tax specialist in the real estate space. Uh, started with friends and I'm providing that advice to other people. So just very involved in, in I would say, the, the Houston slash Texas yeah. markets. And so just, glad to be here. Just curious, like why the car wash business? That's pretty unique. So. It's a unique business. Yeah. So if you look at the, so within the car wash sectors, right, the, the area that I focus on is uh, coin-operated car washes. This is where you pull up your car, you wash your car yourself, you, you know. Now, if you think about it, um, I got into the car washes because it's a real estate play. Nice. Uh, car washes are typically located around neighborhoods, you know. Yeah. And so, and there's, there's good land. And often you can find undervalued land because the car wash may not be doing that yeah. well. Now, once the car wash is operating, then effectively it takes care of all the expenses and then some. Uh, uh, you can buy these car washes with seller financing. So effectively you can put down, you know, 15% down and the rest is paid by car wash. So it's a, yeah. it's a good overall, um, uh, you know, play. Yeah. But, you know, real estate from that perspective, uh, we, um, uh, you, you know, I mean, you can see a 20 to 30 percent increase wow. in, in, in what you paid for because of that. So that's really why. Also, finally, I wanted to be in the I'm always very interested in consumer businesses. So that was a that was a way to get in. Yeah. Uh, keeping in mind, my focus is on on businesses that don't need a lot of labor. Okay. And in these coin operated car washes, you can operate them in like point to self-serve almost. Yeah. Self-serve. Yeah. Exactly. So that that's right. why. Got so. It. So less labor, less, I mean, overhead, I guess, as well. Less overhead, you know, uh, <coughs> self-operated, you know, uh, you, can, you can market it through Google. Yeah. So it's a great way to enter a business, it's a safe business, and it's backed up by land. Yeah. 
So uh, you can always get out of it very easily as well. Nice. That's good. So, I mean, taking it back to the real estate side of things. So obviously living here in Toronto for the last 30 years, me being in the industry for the last decade or so, when I first started, real estate prices were like 300,000, 400,000. Yeah. Now they're in the 1 millions, 1.2s. Yeah. So I know the Houston market and the Toronto market are different, but over here what we're seeing is rising interest rates, yeah. rising costs, uh, rising home prices. Yeah. Um, it's becoming very, very difficult for first-time home buyers, millennials, to get into the market. Yeah. So what's the landscape like in the US right now? Um, and also specifically in the Houston market, are there any opportunities that you're working on okay. um, that okay. would make sense for someone like us to maybe invest yeah. and consider there? Okay. Really, really good question. Yeah. So several things. So let me just, you know, there are some similarities and there's some dissimilarities, yeah. right? The similarities are, of course, you know, rising interest rates. We are uh, the same we are seeing in the U.S. right now. Home mortgages are probably around seven, seven and a half, you know. Yeah. Commercial rates, we were recently pricing out. Um, we were trying to buy some land and build a warehouse. Uh, the loans, uh, the, the, the bank loans are coming out to be 10.5% on a variable to fix this 12.5, right? That effectively basically kills that business, right? So interest rates are definitely uh, similarities yeah. uh, in, in terms of the environment we're in. The dissimilarity is that, you know, and we've known this, I've been coming to Toronto for the last 25, 30 yeah. years. I mean, there the median price of a new home in Houston, Texas is 430,000 US dollars. Yeah. Right. So if you think about it, and that's a home that's about 2,500 square foot, new built. Yeah. Right. So for the average uh, person from Toronto, that would be a godsend, right? Yeah. That wow, you can buy a new home, you know, inside, you know, yeah. within the city limits or whatever. Um, and so in Texas, we did not see uh, real estate appreciation until the last two, three years. Okay. Right, I mean, real estate would go up maybe four or five percent. It wasn't like the Northeast of Toronto where you're just getting this massive increase, right? Yeah. But the cost to enter is much less, right? And so uh, the rental returns are very similar. You know, you can get seven, eight percent, you know, on your investment. So, from a, to to just jump ahead and address your investment question, mm. um, with less dollars, you have the ability to get similar returns. So that's an advantage you know, that in the, the, the Houston and the Texas markets are offering, yeah. right? The other thing is that what we're seeing in, in the United States is massive growth in the South, okay. right? So what's happening is similar to like Toronto, the Northeast, uh, the New York markets and the California markets are heavily taxed and, in, and, and uh, home prices are exorbitant. Yeah. So there's been mass migration to the South, Texas being one of them. Yeah. Houston, uh, just to give you an idea, Houston, <coughs> Uh, is adding a million people a year. Wow. And so it's sitting right now at 6 million uh, population. Yeah. It's forecasted to be, you know, s sort of 10 million in the next four years, the most populated U.S. city by 2050, right? right? What does that mean? That means massive growth, right? So there's a shortage of new home constructions. You mean, uh, while interest rates where they are, builders are building new homes because they yeah. can't put enough of them out there, right? So yeah. you're still seeing very good returns on new home construction yeah. in Houston, as an example. Of, and same thing would apply to Dallas right. uh, yeah, as well, you know, um, uh, and, and, and to a certain extent, Austin. Yeah. But you're seeing this trend of migration that's kind of driving this very significant economic growth. Mm. So what is it about Houston specifically? Is it because it's like a multicultural city? It's just diversity? Like, I, I mean, I've been there several times as well. 
So I do see some parallels and similarities between Toronto and Houston. Um, I think in Toronto, we're also seeing like massive population growth, which is why the prices are going up because the amount of people coming into the country is not keeping pace with the supply of homes. Yeah. So what is it about Houston that is bringing in so many people and where you can still get like a good, like the city itself, like what is the it about is, the city itself, yeah. I guess? So the first thing is the availability <coughs> of land, okay. right? I mean, uh, from a square footage perspective, if you're buying land inside the city in prime area, you can get land still for $100 a square foot, oh, you know, okay. maybe 50 I wish now that, that was the case, yeah. that's, that's impossible to imagine in yeah, Toronto, right? Exactly. But, uh, but you can, right? Yeah. And so what that means is that builders um, you know, can build. Yeah. The other thing about Houston and Toronto is, Houston is a very large city like Toronto is. Yeah. But the way Houston spread was that the suburbs developed first, uh, urbanization didn't happen, okay. right? So uh, basically within the city limits, four or five miles, there were pockets of neighborhoods and there were a lot of what I would call poor areas, you know? Yeah. Um, and then people basically, you know, started building houses in suburbs, right? I mean, the American dream, you know, big house, big yard, two cars, all that was true, right? Yeah. What happened now in the last five years is that people are having to drive 90 minutes to come into work, you know, and so they were like, you know, this is not good. Yeah. So the urbanization of Houston is going on. Right. So whether, wherever there's land available inside the city limits within five miles, seven miles, there are builders who specialize in it. They're building you know, townhouses and so on and so forth. So urbanization of Houston is going on, yeah. which presents a very significant opportunity. That's yeah. number one. Number two, Houston has <laughs> now become the largest medical center in the United States. Massive uh, expansion of uh, medical facilities. Yeah. Right, They're building one million additional square feet of of um, you know medical space, hospitals, research centers in Houston, yeah. and so Houston, from that perspective, um, is 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 uh, that is driving a lot of demand for, for example, nurses and physicians and support staff, right, all around the medical center, okay. which happens to be at the tip of the city limits, right. So that's the second thing, and third thing, which I think everybody knows, is Houston has always been the oil and gas capital yeah. of uh, of the United States yeah. and of the world, right. What's interesting is that now it's the renewables capital. So companies who are driving wind farms, solar farms, batteries, right? They're coming to Houston, why? Because Texas is a easy state to do business with. Yeah. Lots of tax credits, easy to set up, right? No state income tax. So right. as a result, a lot of companies come, as you've seen Tesla you know, move their headquarters, you've yeah. seen others, right? And so th there's a growing trend um, uh, of that in Texas. For example, Dallas has more Fortune 100 companies than New York does. Oh, wow. And so that's why that combined aspect yeah. of energy, renewables, easy <clears throat> business environment, lots of land, you know, yeah. less regulation, right? You don't need so many permits over there. Yeah. That all drives this natural growth that we are seeing yeah. and then internal migration from Northeast and the, and the West, right? right? Last comment, you own a million dollar house or $1.5 million house in, in, in San Francisco. You can get three times a better house for half the price. Yeah. Would you move? You move, you buy it for cash, you're okay. Yeah. And if you're working remotely, and that's what's driving a lot of the growth in, yeah. in that area, right? Yeah, it's kind of similar to what's happening here as well because now a lot of people that I've come across are, well, not a lot of people, but you're starting to see a movement where people are offloading their properties which they gain equity for like a million, two million. And they're okay to move further and further away, you know, in the retirement phase. 
And some of my clients even actually sold their homes here for a million plus and they moved to Houston and Dallas. Yeah. And they bought a house for yeah. maybe one third of the cost. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Paid off in cash. Yeah. So we're seeing that a lot. I think that's going to continue as our cities become more and more expensive. But I guess going back again to why things are becoming so expensive, um, one reason because of inflation. So a big portion of our audience is, uh, you know, the younger generation in yeah. their 20s, 30s, millennials. Yeah. A lot of them don't really still understand the concept of inflation. Yeah. Why rates are going up? You know, why are the cost of goods going up? So can you kind of break it down sure. um, from your experience and your knowledge? You know, what causes inflation and why is it impacting our society, both in the U.S. and Canada? Sure, absolutely. And so we'll, we'll just do a, a quick high-level one-on-one on, on inflation and, and its <coughs> impact, right? I mean, from a, from a very, from a layman's perspective, yeah. the way I would think about inflation is how expensive things are. Now, we all know that in the last couple of years, you know, lunch meals, dinner meals, coffee cups, I mean, you know, coffee, everything is costing more, right? Uber is costing more and so on and so forth. And we were talking earlier, as in you were commenting that it's not just things are costing more, the packages are getting smaller. Yeah. So you're getting less for more, right? right. So, so we are all feeling the pinch, you know, whether it's a loaf of bread, whether it's a gallon of milk, you know, or something, you know, and these are the basic things, right? Cars are getting more expensive and so on and so forth. A lot of that, is, is so what, what does that mean? It's uh, when people say it's inflation. What is inflation, right? At the end of the day, our economies operate on debt. Sure. Companies are set up, they, they put some of you make your you, you know, you put in your own equity investment, but the bulk of your funding comes from banks, right? And so, and then you're paying banks, you know, a cost of capital and interest rate, right? So on and so forth. Now, now, when interest rates, when banks increase interest rates, and we'll come back to why they do that, right? Right. Um, when banks increase interest rates, everything being the same, if you're having to pay more money to the bank, what are you going to do? Yeah. You're not going to reduce your profit margin. You're going to increase your, your, uh, your uh, pricing, right? That, when you increase your pricing, now you are a producer of milk, Milk is a input into restaurants, into other byproducts, into cheese. Well, they increase pricing, right? Yeah. So you can see this domino effect where, you know, an interest rate increase increases pricing across the board and things get more expensive for us, yeah. right? So that's, that's, kind of the, that's kind of the idea of, of sort of how it works. Now, why do banks increase interest rates? Well, uh, fiscal policy is determined by the countries, right? So in the U.S., the Feds, determine what the interest rates. And what the feds want is they don't like high inflation, right? They don't like things being more expensive because then economies can go into recession because when, it, when things are more expensive, people stop spending, they start saving more, businesses rely on people buying, and yeah. so then you can see everything comes crashing down, right? right? And we saw you know, some of that or a lot of that during COVID. When nobody was going out, and so companies were suffering so much so that yeah. people needed massive bailouts and stimulus packages, yeah. so on and so forth. The U.S. government gave the airline industry almost 25 to $50 billion of specific aid so the airlines wouldn't go out of business, business right? Yeah. So you can see an example of economic activity, right? Yeah. Now, so going back to the inflation part, when there are recessions, then governments decrease interest rates. Yeah. So that things get cheaper, so people spend more money, right? But when things are getting expensive, their default answer is to increase interest rates yeah. so that 
things, you know, so that costs go up, right? And as a result of costs going up, right, there's a slowdown in spending, which then brings down, you know, the inflation, right? So it's a, it's a painful process for the consumer, yeah. but it's what the feds are trying to do to basically offset, balance out yeah. what could be, you know, massive recession or depression, blah, 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 versus economic growth, right? So we're in this stage now, and we're in this stage <laughs> mainly because post-COVID, a lot of money was pumped in into yeah. the, you know, into uh, the economies, right? People got stimulus checks and all that. Well, when you have more money, what do you do, right? You spend, spend more, more, right? Yeah. And you are willing to pay more for the same thing. People are willing to pay more for the same, for coffee. So the coffee yeah. prices went up, right? And that's what drove inflation. How now the government is trying to pull, rein that back in. Yeah. It's a painful process, right? And, uh, and, but it's the parity that's needed to get back to, you know, growth-oriented economy. Yeah, do you think during COVID that maybe the feds or even the central the bank of canada did they reduce rates too fast and is this why we're seeing this painful process right now because just to kind of give you a perspective of what we're hearing in toronto and canada in general is that when covid happened like obviously everybody was was shocked and they were scared that business were going to fall we we're going to fail so our bank of canada drastically reduced the rates to right. the point where like yeah. the housing market was in a frenzy that yeah. we've never seen before yeah. And at the time, I remember asking myself, like, I don't know if we need to reduce it so low yeah. because the market was already pretty hot. And the statement coming out of the Bank of Canada was that rates are going to stay low for a long time. Yeah. So go out and spend. Word for word yeah, is yeah. what they said. I'm paraphrasing, yeah, but this yeah. is what they were saying. Yeah. Right. Lo and behold, last year, we yeah. had double digit interest rate hikes almost every yeah, yeah. quarter, every month. Yeah. And now people are like, well, you basically right. lied to us. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So is that kind of what happened in the States too? Or? But it's similar and yeah. look, you can find, you could find as many people saying yeah. they were wrong and others saying they were right, right? Yeah. Economists, what I've learned is, I'm an avid reader of the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. You have two opinions on everything, everything. right? <laughs> Nobody agrees on anything, right? Yeah. But if you look at historically what happened, I mean, fiscal policy is an art, it's not a science, mm -hmm. right? And so if they get it right, they get it right through, you know, pure chance. Otherwise, yeah. they're bound to make mistakes, right? Yeah. And so what they can do is they can basically, you know, they can tug at the problem. But it's not like surgery where you can go in and remove a malignant yeah. piece of whatever right. and, and fix it. It's not like that. It's an art. So right, yeah. it, it is trial and error, right? Okay. So I think, I think from their perspective, what they were trying to get you to do is spend more, which you did. Yeah. And, but you spend a lot more. And now yeah. they're trying to pull you back, pull right? You back, and yeah. that's why rates are going up. Because ultimately, look, what happens when rates go up? I'm sure from your reader's perspective, yeah. of a listener's perspective, you know, you can now make some really good money but just keeping your money in the bank. Yeah. But that's what they want you to do. They don't want you to spend it. Right. They want you to keep it in the bank, right? Yeah. So that you can make more money and spending goes down, so inflation comes down, right? Yeah. So we're in this cycle of right now. But for, for folks, this is the time probably I mean, this is a time to conserve cash, of course, yeah. right? But this could be also a time if you are sitting on cash for some great opportunities. Right. I mean, I follow the Toronto markets, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, prices are down. Yeah. And this market is unusual to have prices down, yeah. right? Yeah, doesn't happen so too I, often. So I think, also think it depends on the, on the investors, right? Yeah. But my view is real estate investing is a long-term game, right? Yeah. And diversity is good, you know? Yeah. And so... If you're looking at the Houston market from that perspective, it's yeah. good diversity because right. uh, there are some great opportunities out there yeah. you know, to invest, right? 
A lot of people are not investing, let's be clear, because yeah. they're uncertain about what's going to happen, you know, yeah. and some of the areas. But at least in the residential space in Houston and in Texas, yeah. you know, there are plenty of opportunities to invest. Right. So that's a good point you brought up because uh, actually one of my questions was, you know, is it still a good time to buy? So if you are, let's say, younger millennial again, just addressing the millennials a lot because they're going through a lot of pain when it comes to buying a house here in Toronto. Um, do you think at a certain point, does it even make sense to get into the housing market if it's so expensive? Or would you rather tell a millennial or younger guy to keep renting and maybe invest somewhere else? Like, where is that line? And, and are you still an advocate of, of home ownership despite prices going up? Well, you mean you're talking about rates going up, right? Rates and also, right. yeah, rates and right. also prices yeah. will are, yeah. are not cheap, right? So, yeah. Like, uh, yeah, I mean, look. Yeah. I mean, for me, it, it just seems like, um, I mean, interest rates are, are temporary, yeah. right? So if I do an analysis, I look at it, okay, so these rates are too high, eventually yeah. they'll come down, right? I mean, you look at charts, rates go up, the rates come down, right? Mm. So the analysis should be long-term, okay. right? That, you know, okay, so the next couple of years, you're not going to make anything, but after that you could make something, or next five years, be conservative. Yeah. And if still the returns are there, then I would say yes, you know. Okay. Uh, because guess what? When you're keeping your money in the bank, yeah, you're getting 5%, whatever you're getting, yeah. but your money is not as worth as much because inflation is high, right? right? So buying a capital asset yeah. is, is always a good thing because if that capital asset keeps going up over time, that's usually a better yeah. use of your capital than sitting in the bank, you know, right? right? Now, I'm, I'm an advocate, you shouldn't borrow money to invest, right. but if you're sitting on cash yeah. and you get some good opportunities, you know, uh, then that's really, that, that should mm. be it, right? Yeah. And so from that perspective, yeah, I'm, I'm an advocate of deploying capital in all markets, right? Yeah. Because you may be seeing opportunities pricing-wise in right. Toronto yeah. or, or, or for that matter in Houston that you may not see otherwise. Yeah. So I think for me, real estate investing, you have to remind yourself, it's a long-term game. Yeah. You know, to create a good real estate portfolio, it takes 20 years, you know? Right, right. You start now small, you know, you can start investing. Yeah. And in Houston, when I say we're investing in, uh, you know, residential, we're not building it ourselves. We're yeah. investing with real estate development companies right. who will give you a project for $50,000, $100,000 investment, yeah. and you can get very good returns, right? Yeah. So that's, that's what I'm talking about, is basically investing in, in, uh, with companies that are offering you opportunities, yeah. you know, to get in, you know? Right. In, right. in terms of, like, when we're talking about investing other than your homes. Yeah. Right? So those uh, opportunities are good opportunities right now. Yeah. Are there opportunities in Houston or Texas in general um, that you work with that deal with more, like, multifamily housing? Is that something big over there? And yes. Multifamily yeah. housing has been very big uh, in Houston for the last five, six <coughs> years. Uh, today, the analysis is showing that there's probably a slight overbuild oh, yeah. in the multifamily. Okay. So what's happening? Let's look at the economy, yeah. right? Inflation is high. Rents are going up, right? Yeah. Now, when there's a little bit of oversupply, then the, then the renters have a choice now, right? Yeah. And they can also go and rent houses over there. Yeah. So I think in the multifamily area, uh, what's happening right now is that in the last five years, the typical multifamily that was selling for $70 a door, yeah. $70,000 a door, went up to like 120, 130. Okay. Massive returns, yeah. right? That's starting to pull back now. Okay. Because of overbuild. Over oversupply. Oversupply, a little yeah. bit of oversupply. And there's a lot of uh, projects in the pipeline that are coming out, again, right. to meet the city's needs. Yeah. So I think in the multifamily space, 
uh, and interest rates have gone up, commercial rates have gone up, and so multifamily investments were returning somewhere between 15 to 20% on an annualized basis. Yeah. I see that dropping down to still a decent 12% return. Yeah. Now, the problem is, it's not bad, but yeah. people who are used to 15, they don't want to get 12. Right. But multifamily is uh, probably still an attractive sector in, yeah. you know, in, in the Texas markets. Okay, okay. Um, I guess shifting gears more on the entrepreneurship side, business side of things, because you do a lot of investment in business as well, like you said, and, and, and you've taught me a lot about you know, businesses. Um, for people out there right now that are looking to invest in a business, um, what advice would you give them? What should they be looking for, whether they're starting up a business or even buying an existing business? You know, it, it's a great question. I'm I'm an I'm an advocate that uh, you know the you know in a typical family, you know whether you know, let's say you're single, um, everybody should be spending a little bit of time. And by that, I, I don't mean just sitting with friends and saying, hey, we should do something, right? Yeah. Actually doing something about it, right? right. Um, you know, and, and that could be market research. That could be, you know, um, looking at what's going on, what's reading about it, you know, subscribing to something. You have to kind of, um, in order to be an entrepreneur, you have to plant the entrepreneurial seed within yourself, yeah. right? And then you have to let it grow. And uh, because it just doesn't happen overnight, right? Because and, you know, at the end of the day, investing in a business eventually ends up you writing a check. And often people, when they have to write that check for their initial investment, yeah. they're like, no, I'm not ready for it. Because you haven't trained yourself for that, yeah. the risks and so on and so forth, right? right? So it's always good to start to say, okay, you know what? Okay, I'm going to do something five years from now, but what do I need to have in place right now? That's going to drive your networking. Yeah. That's going to drive your market research. That's going to drive a relationship, you know, with a banker. So, you know, overall your skill set will get, but for plant the entrepreneurial seed first, right? Yeah. Read about it, you know, subscribe to it, whatever, you yeah. know, just so that you do it. Then, then you start to see, okay, what need can I fulfill, yeah. right? For example, when I started the, the tax cutter business, the property taxes, property taxes in Houston, you know, are dealing with counties, it's a very complex process, right? Yeah. The terminology is very difficult, people don't understand it, there's a lot of confusion, and so I thought maybe I could solve my problem or the problem like where homeowners like myself have. They don't understand the terminology. They don't understand how they can get their property taxes that I could provide them a solution to do that, right? right. So you think about, you know, hey, something that you're passionate about that you can do that, right? Yeah. Um, but it, it's, <laughs> a, it's an iterative process. Yeah. There's lots of failures that come. Those are learning experiences, but yeah. they are failures. And so my, my advice would be that uh, start early, right. you know, uh, start to gain, you know, give yourself the tools, the data, the research, you know, talk to friends who open businesses, right? So that you can get mentally prepared, start saving for it. And then, yeah, I mean, there's plenty of franchises out there that you yeah. can invest in, yeah. right? At the end of the day, if you look at entrepreneurs, what do they have? They have freedom of time, right? They, they, they put in a lot of sacrifices, but guess what? They get to decide where they're going to be at 2 o'clock in the afternoon or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, right? Yeah. They may be working, but they get to decide that. That's a choice they make, right? Yeah. And uh, we all would love that. Yeah. But I'm, I'm a big advocate that you should, be, you should be doing that in some aspect, you know? And now, let's just quick comment. Amazon, yeah. you know? I mean, online selling and all that, there's so many opportunities, right? Yeah where you can, you, can, you can do something like that. You know? yeah. But 
The key is you have to put time into it. Yeah. Nothing happens without time. Right. And I guess you also, like you said, do you have flexibility? Well, not flexibility, but you can schedule what you want around the things that are important to you. But your work doesn't feel like work. It's actually enjoyable. Yeah. So, it's, it's, you know, it's yours, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, you know, my garden, yeah. my, my blood, sweat and tears, right? Yeah, yeah. That's the same thing with business, right? Right. And so that, <clears throat> that passion, yeah, people say, I love my job. You know, I, I've, I spent 25 years in corporate America. Yeah. So, you know, I enjoyed my job, yeah. you know, and I love the experience <coughs> I had. Mm. But the passion that I can bring to my own business yeah. is, it can, doesn't even compare. Yeah you know, to, to what I was bringing, you know. And I felt like I was a very engaged, yeah. you know, employee and a partner for my firm. Yeah. But still, you know, yours, you know, your business is your business, right? right. And you feel it, you know, right. it's personal, right. right? And so, yeah, and, and it also builds out, helps you build skills that you otherwise don't have, you know. Yeah. Talk to entrepreneurs, yeah, they go through challenges, but, you know, they know how to weather the storm, yeah. you know. Uh, and they don't live with this anxiety, oh my God, you know, the economy is down. You know, yeah, they have they have other anxieties, but yeah. am I going to lose my job? I mean, you know, this is the downside of corporate America. Mm. You could be a great worker, great person, but you get downside. You know, and you're like, what happened here, right? So that yeah. there's, there's an element of that, and you're starting to see, you know, you're starting to see that in the new generation that yeah. they don't give a lot of brand loyalty to companies anymore, right? right? They want to do contract work, da, 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 you know, yeah. they want to do other things. So you're starting to see that change come through. Yeah, and I think with businesses, it's also, you know, you're not, you can have multiple businesses, whereas a job, you have one job. Yeah. But with businesses, you can have different streams yeah. of revenue, which I think is really important in today's day and age with cost of living yeah. going up. Um, would you say that someone needs to have at least two or three revenue streams in this society? You know, it's, it's a great question. I think it depends on the person, yeah. right? I mean, what people will tell you is that focusing on one thing, mm, yeah. you know, um, is is the best way to approach it, right? Yeah. My view is it depends on your personality, right? right. Uh, and the indicator is, are you too stretched? There is a limit to yeah. what you can you can we get can done do in a day, right? Yeah. And when you have multiple businesses, then you need better teams, you know? Yeah. Now, if you're a micromanager, and it, there's nothing wrong with being one, yeah. because, you know, micromanagers get a lot done, then one business is sufficient, right? Because yeah. you want to look at every aspect of it, right? And you right. want to bring your your blood, sweat, and tears in. My view, my own personal preference is I like multiple businesses, yeah. you know, but I've also made mistakes in a sense that I've stretched myself too thin sometimes. Mm. So I've, I've uh, uh, recognized that and I've pulled back, you know? And, uh, and so there is a right medium, but, it, but yeah. again, you know yourself better than anybody else, right? Yeah. If you're able to delegate, you're able to do this, you're able to supervise, then multiple businesses work. Uh -huh. uh, if you're not able to do that, and you're very particular about how the PowerPoint looks and what the product feels like and looks like, then you can't do that and you yeah. shouldn't do that yeah. because that's the best and highest use of your time, you know? Right, right. So. gotcha. Uh, last question for you on, on the business side of things, artificial intelligence, which is obviously yeah. uh, up and coming now. So yeah. I don't know how much you know about it, but I'm using it and it's yeah. a phenomenal tool. Yeah. Um, what are you seeing in, in North America and how is AI changing the course of doing business yeah. and day-to-day -day operations? Yeah. I mean, look, this is a, I mean, this is nothing new. Everybody yeah. recognizes AI to be a massive change, right? But <coughs> what does it mean? Yeah. Right? 
So when I was at Ernst & Young, you know, we were talking about digital transformation many, many years ago, right? I always try to look at things from a layman's perspective, right? So digital transformation meant automation, yeah. right? Things that you were doing manually, you could now do it, you know, uh, you know a computer program could do it for you, yeah. right? So that was automation, right? Now, now with AI, the way I look at it is, it's automation plus, right? Yeah. That not only can it do the things you want it to do, it can also make some decisions for you, you yeah. know? It can give you better insights, right? So that is going to, that is massively changing, right? Of course, a lot of us didn't know anything about it until we saw ChatGPT. Yeah. Now ChatGPT uh, gave the average person idea of what the potential is, right? It can write a better resume than you can. Yeah. It can give you more insights, right? It can plan for you. So in the, in the, in the course of human evolution, this is a massive step forward, right? Yeah. And so it is going to affect all of our lives, you know, in, in many ways. Uh, for some of us, it's awesome. For others, you know, we'll be out of jobs, right? There are yeah. certain things that, uh, you know, human beings will just not have to do. So I think right. how fast it comes through, time will tell. Yeah. But yes, you know, is it a tool that each one of us can use? Absolutely. Yeah. And should get comfortable using it, right? You should be very comfortable using new technologies. Yeah. And that's what the younger generation obviously has a huge start. They're yeah. much more comfortable. The older generation gets very nervous, yeah. you know. And so that's, an, that's, that's, but you should be comfortable adopting these technologies, particularly like marketing, targeting customers yeah. and so on and so forth, right? So, nice. yeah, I'm seeing huge, huge, huge uh, um, um, investments coming through. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, how it impacts us. Nice. Okay. So just to end off the podcast, some fun questions now, non-business yeah. related. So I'm going to ask you some rapid fire questions and uh, just to get to know you a bit more. Um, what's your favorite uh, movie that you've watched and that you continue to watch over and over? Matrix. Matrix? Okay. <laughs> really? How come? <laughs> I, it's just um, uh, every time I watch Matrix, it's, uh, so I have a, I have a philosoph philosophical side to my yeah. personality. The fact that you know, the character is living in a world that's completely made up of, and yeah. then we're plugged in and managed by machines was, was dawned on me that, yeah. is this our reality, right? right? You know, and so we go about our businesses, adopting everything, and so on and so forth. So yeah. I just felt like that was a, you know, that movie was ahead of its time, you know? Yeah, definitely was. Uh, the, so it's, it's yeah. same thing with Forrest Gump, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, it's just so, so yeah. that, from that aspect, yeah, I, I felt like that's a movie I can watch over. Nice. Again. Uh, you've traveled a lot. Where's uh, your favorite place uh, to travel? You know, um, I've traveled uh, because of yeah. my associate with Ernst Young. I've literally traveled the world, right? Obviously, favorite is always uh, uh, for me. Uh, uh, Pakistan, where I was born, is mm. a, is a is a great place to go back to. Obviously, for sentimental reasons, emotional yeah. reasons, you know, family reasons. But also, Pakistan is a beautiful country. Yeah. For those of us who haven't seen northern Pakistan. It's, it's gorgeous, 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 you know. So uh, yeah. other than that, I have Singapore, um, just in terms of like, yeah. you know, how organized it is, has been a, is, is a great favorite. But I feel like, you know, I mean, love Toronto as well, you yeah. know. The flowers here are phenomenal. Yeah. So every place has its own, you know, good Charm. things that you can look at. Where, where have you just, I guess, the list of cities you can mention? Where have you traveled? You traveled a lot, so. Yeah, I've, I've basically visited places? every every yeah. major city in the United wow. States, okay. uh, probably every major capital in, yeah. in Europe, um, um, uh, throughout the, <coughs> throughout uh, Southeast Asia, yeah. right? 
Uh, I mean, the only continent I really have been to Australia. The only continent I haven't traveled to is 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 Africa. I've been to Egypt, but no, yeah. none of the other countries. You know, okay. that never. But it was you know so, so literally almost all parts of the world. And where was the best food you'd say? <laughs> I would say you know the best food again outside of Pakistan, Singapore, yeah. because of its multicultural aspects of it. Yeah. London is a phenomenal <coughs> place for uh, you know foods again because of the, yeah. the 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 diversity you see over there, right? And then South America, you know, with uh, its cuisine, yeah. right? So nice. um, uh, had some amazing sushi in Rio de Janeiro, which is interesting. It has yeah. the largest Japanese population outside of Japan. Oh, I didn't know that. And so you know, That's so yeah, cool. so um, but yeah, it's um, it's been fun. Nice. Uh, what's your favorite book that you've read that you've rec that you would recommend to us as well? I mean, um, I used to read a lot of books before. Yeah. Now, uh, I don't read as many f fictional books or others because I feel like I read a lot and I could yeah. just practice, you know? Yeah. But um, I thought <coughs> that um, my favorite books are ones that, that help you improve, you know? Yeah. And so there was a book called, uh, you know, I recently read a book called The Seed of Trust. Okay. And, um, and it was written by Stephen Covey Jr., yeah. whose father wrote Seven Habits Seven. Are Highly Effective, you know? Yeah. And so the seed of trust was eye-opening for me because it, it dawned on me how much, how much trust, how strong a part trust plays in your, in the, in your relationships, whether they're personal or professional, right? Yeah. But if you focus on building trust, uh, then the relationship flourishes themselves, you know? And I've actually you know, implemented it and I've seen the result, returns of it, right? Yeah. So I think if you're a professional, you should definitely understand how you can build trust, you know, with people you deal with, you know, yeah. and what are the things you may be doing consciously or, un you know, unconsciously yeah. that are eroding that trust. And then you're not getting the deals you want. You're not getting the responses you want. And it may be because something right. you're doing that is effectively not investing in that trust that, uh, that people want to see from you. Yeah. What's it called? The seed of trust. The seed of trust. The seed of trust. Okay. Yes. Gotcha. Last question. What's the best piece of advice somebody ever gave you? Long time ago, um, I had a counselor, so when I had joined um, um, in public accounting, we would be assigned mentors, right? And uh, I was new to the United States, I was new to this culture, right? Um, uh, I had a very strong you know, Islamic faith background, so I knew all that, so, but, but the West was different. And somebody once told me that, look, you're gonna succeed in America if you look at, uh, if you focus on, or you tell yourself that everything is your responsibility. Yeah. Right, be responsible, and then you will succeed. Right, so don't leave it to others to take care of your stuff. Right, yeah. and when you're responsible for something, be responsible, mm -hmm. and just showing that ownership, you know, um, I think really helps. Uh, that's what leaders do. They take ownership of you know large activities. People trust them. So I think that being responsible more than the average is is really really um, is something that can help you both personally yeah. and professionally. You know. Nice. Awesome. That's a great way to, to end off the podcast. Thank, Thank you. you so much. It was a pleasure you. having you. Same and, here. Uh, I think when you're back, there's so much more we can talk about. So we'll do a part two whenever you're back in time. Absolutely. Happy to do yeah, it. Thanks Happy so much. If you guys enjoyed the content, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to the channel. And we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you very much.